Good evening, everybody. Can you hear me? Is the microphone in the right place? Now, can you hear me better? You shouldn't put it upside down on. <laughs> so um, I am just can't even tell you what it feels like to sit up here right now. Um, I'm feeling a lot of just gratitude and appreciation for all of your practice. I'm going to be talking tonight about uh, the three refuges. And, you know, I feel like I'm talking to the more than converted. I mean, all of you have obviously taken deep refuge to somehow figure out how to carve out either six weeks or three months of your life to be here. And, you know, the refuge is probably working deeply in you. So what I am going to talk about tonight, I just offer as a reflection because, you know, that is good Dharma practices to reflect on to reflect on the three refuges. So I offered as that. And I just want to thank the teachers for being here. Saturday is the day off. <laughs> so I have deep gratitude for all of them as well. So um, first I want to start off by t- telling a story out of the uh, one of the suttas. It's the story of... Uh, Agadatta. So Agadatta was a uh, contemporary to the Buddha. He actually lived in India around the same time the Buddha did. And he had a similar background to the Buddha. He was actually also born into wealth and privilege. And um, he, you know, was, had everything that the world at the time could offer. And he found no real deep satisfaction in it. And he uh, left that life and became a traveling aesthetic. And um, he really loved the wilderness. So he would hang out in the woods and in the trees. And that's what he taught his disciples. And he amassed 10,000 people who followed him. And he taught that people should take refuge in the mountains, the forests, the gardens, and parks, and trees for their refuge from danger and suffering. That's what he taught. And a lot of us a lot of us do that. A lot of us go out to the wilderness for some, some respite. So uh, the Buddha at the time, you know, he was traveling around the area, and he saw with his vision, you know, Buddha had that vision. He could tell who had just a little bit of dust in their eyes. You know, I just love that term, a little bit of dust in their eyes. So he knew that if he gave them certain teachings that they would really benefit by them. So he, you know, devised this plan. He actually talked to Mogalana, one of his uh, disciples, and he said, Mogalana, I want you to go hang out with Agadatta and his followers, and then I'm going to meet you there in a day or two. So uh, Mogalana went over to Agadatta's, where Agadatta was hanging out, and he said, oh, can I, you know, stay the night here? And Agadatta knew that, uh, you know, Mogalana was following another aesthetics, you know, another uh, leader. And he said, no, we don't want you here. You really can't stay here. And Mogalana said, come on, you know, I'm a, I am a, an aesthetic. You should, you know, let me hang out. And so um, 
One thing about Agadatta, the place that he lived, he lived very close to this sandy mound that was very famous because a Naga lived there. And a Naga is a mythical Indian creature that was actually half human and half cobra. So this was, you know, an interesting, an interesting creature. So um, when Agadatta, you know, when Mogolana finally convinced um, Agadatta let him stay there, Agadatta said, okay, you can spend the night, but you have to go sleep on that sandy mound with the Naga. <laughs> so, uh, you know, Mogolana said, okay. So he went over there and he pitched his tent. And of course, the Naga and Mogolana got in a big fight. And, you know, they say in the suttas, it said that, you know, there were, they, their powers were displayed. There was all this smoke and fire going between them. But of course, Mogolana won, right? So, uh, and, the, and the Naga was just amazed that Mogolana had the power that he had. So Mogolana was, you know, was really um, beat by the fight. So he sat down to meditate. And the Naga was so impressed and so tamed by the interaction with um, Mogolana that he actually, he actually, um, you know, got up behind him and put his head over Mogolana's head, as Krobas will do, and spread his head and became a umbrella for Mogolana while Mogolana was meditating. So he was just showing his incredible, you know, um, honoring of what Mogolana had done. And then, of course, just a little while later, Agadatta and his 10,000 followers were saying, okay, let's go check out what's happening with Mogolana. So they um, go over there, and they couldn't believe it. They're up there, and there they are in the sandy mound. Mogolana is sitting in deep meditation, and the Naga is wrapped around the back of him with his head over Mogolana acting as an umbrella. So they were absolutely astounded. And, you know, they were just thinking, oh, my gosh, this guy probably has something to teach us. Right at that time, the Buddha came up. The Buddha came up, and Mogolana came out of meditation, and he jumps up, and he says, this is my teacher, the Supreme Buddha, and I am but a humble pupil of this great teacher. So you can imagine what happened. <laughs> Agadatta said, you mean I came here, and I'm, you know, I was about to take teachings from you, and you're telling me that this guy is your teacher? So, you know, as you can imagine, um, Agadatta and his 10,000 followers were just ready to hear what the Buddha said. And the Buddha gave him a wonderful discourse. Um, and actually, this is what, what um, the Buddha asked, uh, asked um, Agadatta. The Buddha then asked Agadatta what he taught his followers. Agadatta replied that he had taught them to pay homage to mountains, forests, parks, and gardens, and trees, and that by doing so, they would be liberated from all ills of life. The Buddha replied to Agadatta, Agadatta, people go to mountains, forests, gardens, and parks, and trees for refuge when they are threatened with danger, but these things cannot offer them any protection. Only those who take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha are liberated from the rounds of rebirth, samsara. And he gave them a talk about the Four Noble Truths, and they were all fully enlightened after that. So, so um, um, Bonte last night gave a beautiful talk about renunciation, about, um, you know, we get to some points in our life and 
things just are not very satisfying for us. Uh, one way uh, they talk about this in the suttas is by the eight vicissitudes of life. And we all have experienced this. I know we all. Let's reflect on the vicissitudes of our life. There's pleasure and pain. There's gain and loss. There's praise and blame. And there's fame and disrepute. And I'll just tell you a little story. Um, I guess it was last March I was sitting up at the Forest Refuge for a month actually with Joseph and Kabbalah Masters. I mean, what could be better than that? That was definitely happiness. That was definitely pleasure. Um, and I had, you know, I actually have a full-time job, actually, a 50-hour-a-week job. I'm actually an associate professor at the Schools of Public Health and Social Work at the University of Washington. And I also work at an American Indian Alaska Native Research Center. And, you know, for the past five years, we've been doing really partnership work with tribal colleges in the United States. And there's 37 tribal colleges, and I'll tell you, they are in the poorest counties in the entire United States. They really are. Most of them are. You know, some of them have some resources, but many of them are in the poorest counties in the United States. So, um, you know, I had been working with them, my team and I had been working with them for, you know, years. And we were about to submit a proposal. I had everything ready before I went on retreat. You know, I had the whole package ready. We were submitting to the National Institutes of Health for a $2.3 million grant over five years to do alcohol problem reduction at the colleges. And we just, you know, had letters from maybe 20 tribal college presidents saying, yes, we want to do this work. We want to partner with you. So here I was sitting up at the forest refuge with Joseph and Kamala, you know, definitely pleasure and just so happy that I could take a whole month off to uh, go sit. And right in the middle of my retreat, you know, the uh, office staff came and got me and said, oh, you've, there's some emergency back at your office. You have to talk to them. So I got this email, and it turns out that the Association of Tribal Colleges, the, um, you know, actually I probably shouldn't mention any names, but <laughs> this one association that has a lot of power submitted their letter to, uh, to support us and it said, yeah, we really need this intervention, but, you know, Bonnie, sometimes she needs to do a little bit more background work. She needs to talk to us a little bit more about what she's planning. So we want the, the report, but we want Bonnie to do things differently in the future. So, you know, I said, well, this is a, you know, this definitely means that we can't submit the grant. So I got pulled out of the retreat and, you know, for a day I talked to this person and that person. And I called, you know, the place we got the letter from and said, I get the message. We are not going to submit the grant. We're pulling the grant. The grant's already been pulled. And she said, what are you talking about? I said, we're pulling the grant. She goes, you can't pull the grant. We really need that intervention. And I said, well, you know, I'm in disrepute right now. I'm being disreputed. <laughs> you know, a minute ago I was famous because I was going to submit the grant, but you're definitely disreputing me right now. <laughs> and if I submit this grant, you know, we're not going to get the money. And she said, well, just don't submit the letter then. You know, she said, I know you have letters from a lot of other people, just don't submit our letter. But she actually used the words, I insist that you submit this grant. So as you can imagine, you know, I did submit the grant, but, you know, I sat with that for the rest of the retreat. <laughs> and even when I got back. And, you know, I think that all of us who work within communities, 
whether you know they're communities of color, whether they're you know medical or helping professions, which a lot of us do, you know whether they're even Dharma circles. We see that all the time. That even our best efforts sometimes you know we're not as skillful as they we can be, or people misinterpret what we're trying to do, or it runs up against what someone else is trying to do, and it just doesn't work out, even with the, our best intentions. So um, we know it's hard to work in the helping professions. It's hard to work in communities of color. For us to think that you know those, those um, communities are just you know roses and light, I think is not to see the truth of them. It's hard to work in our communities. I think we know that. Actually, I remember once um, at a community event, and a lot of us were, um, a lot of Native people were sitting around talking about writing a book called Shot Off My White Horse. Because, <laughs> you know, you, you want to work in communities. And, you know, sometimes it works really well, and sometimes it doesn't. So that was the disrepute part. So, you know, that was very difficult, and, you know, we tried to repair. Um, relationships. And then on um, actually July 15th, we got a notice of grant award from the National Institutes of Health. And we got $2.3 million to do the intervention. So that was a gain, praise, and fame moment. And, you know, now we're going around to all of the colleges trying to negotiate working together. And, you know, fame, disrepute, praise, blame, gain, and loss it is all in there. I mean, all the work that we do, can you ever think of a time in your life where both of those weren't together? So um, as Bonte talked about last night, re renunciation, you know, we have to give up. It's not that any of that work is bad. It's not that pleasure is bad. It's not that gain is bad or praise or fame. It's that it will never give us the satisfaction that we're looking for. It just is not capable of providing the deep peace or the deep sense of well-being that we're all looking for. And is there a place that is possible for that? Is there a happiness that it is not dependent on external conditions? And we all know the answer to that. Of course there is. And that uh, one way to start walking that path towards a happiness that's not dependent on external conditions is to take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, the triple gem. I heard, you know, I read actually during um, my research for this little talk that the reason it's called the triple gem is because back in that time, and actually still in Vedic astrology, gems are thought to offer real protection. So that's one reason they call it the triple gem. The, triple, the three jewels. Jewels have protective characteristics. So what does it mean to take refuge in the Buddha in the first of the triple gems? Of course, you know, we're talking about the historical Buddha, uh, Siddhartha Gautama, an Indian prince um, who renounced his royal titles and even and went into the forest. I mean, he went into the forest, meditating until he um, ultimately gained awakening. You know, and he lived about 2,500 years ago. So there's this historical person. And, you know, there's two ways to think about um, the historical Buddha. But, you know, before I say, you know, the ways that we can 
um, embrace what he taught in his awakening right now, I just need to say something about that, you know, the historical Buddha is, has been for many years a, a religious figure. He's a historical religious figure. But now he's actually a huge scientific figure in the West. You know, what he taught is, you know, garnering a huge amount of interest in a huge variety of different disciplines of higher education. Uh, for example, um, you know, I actually did a lit search right before I came here, you know, right before I actually, today, in preparation for this talk, and I found, how many did I find? I found 2,466 uh, articles and academic research uh, complete in the last five years about mindfulness that were about mindfulness. Uh, almost 2,500 articles in the academic press. And these are just some examples I wanted to give you. Uh, for example, th in this month edition of the Annals of Family Medicine, which is a very high-impact journal, this is not just a little journal. This is the journal of family practice, probably worldwide. There's three articles about mindfulness. Mindfulness and Practice and Policy, Abbreviated Mindfulness Intervention for Job Satisfaction, Quality of Life, and Compassion in Primary Care, and then finally, a multi-center study of physician mindfulness and healthcare quality. They're pretty much saying that mindfulness is going to save the Affordability Care Act, <laughs> or Obamacare. No, not really. For, the, for you, for our international friends, you know, we're trying to have, um, you know, healthcare for everyone like many of you have, and it's, it's getting to be an issue here for us. Um, just very quickly, in, in the, you know, four days ago, Psychology Today, which is like the popular press psychology article published, uh, you know, um, magazine published an article, 20 Scientific Reasons to Start Meditating Today. New research shows meditation boosts your health, happiness, and success. And then uh, this one was really interesting. Uh, in the Annals of New York Academic Academy of Sciences, you know, September 4th was published right now, September 4th, 2013. Neural correlates of non-dual awareness and meditation. So they're saying that they are actually uh, checking out the neural correlates of people resting in non-duality. That is a pretty big claim. <laughs> and then finally, I wanted to just um, read a few words from this, from this um, abstract of another article published in September of 2013. He, uh, this author talks about um, the significant neuroscientific uh, research focusing on the plasticity and malleability of the human brain. And then he goes on to say, the article concludes that these Revolutionary discoveries concerning neuroplasticity, you know, are, are, are um, groundbreaking for the field of medicine. And um, he actually proposes, rather than to do pastoral counseling, counseling that there should be something called neurotheology. <laughs> and you know, I just want to point out that all of these, um, all of these. Um, breakthroughs in how the brain works are because of, you know, advances in technology of measuring the brain, right? MRIs and CT scans. But, you know, 
the malleability of the brain is actually one of the 52 mental factors that was talked about in the Abhidhamma in the year one. Um, what was it? it? Must have been the year 1000. So the Buddha, you know, what he's teaching us is to look at things as well as MRI imaging right now. And and I just say that because this person was amazing, you know, the historical Buddha. It just he just blows my mind, and I just wanted to say that. And so I wanted to say that. As um, Andrea said the other day, the dude abides. <laughs> so that was the historical Buddha. He abides. So anyway. And then, but you know, there's another way, a, a more important way, I'm sure, to, for us to understand uh, the taking refuge in the Buddha. And that is that uh, the Buddha was a human being that taught that there was a way to, um, to let go of suffering. You know, we all know that he taught one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. And that's why we're all here. And um, so another way to think about or a reflection about taking refuge in the Buddha is to take refuge on a self-reliance, our own self-reliance, us having to actually do that work to be awakened and the possibility of being awakened, you know, versus being saved by someone else. You know, the Buddha could talk, could um, expound the Dharma and because of people's own paramis and their own um, purification, they could become enlightened, but the Buddha couldn't enlighten somebody. I mean, he couldn't, you know, um, wave a wand and enlighten people. So, and you know, he's telling us that we are responsible for our own happiness. We are responsible for our own happiness and we are responsible for our own suffering as well. If we don't look for where happiness is, we're not going to find it. If we don't look where suffering can end, it's not going to end. And I want to read just a little bit of the Kusala Sutta, because this is where um, the Buddha, you know, was trying to give us confidence that we could do it. He says, abandon what is unwholesome. One can abandon the unwholesome. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. Abandoning, abandoning of the unwholesome brings benefit and happiness. Therefore, I say, abandon what is unwholesome. Cultivate what is wholesome. One can cultivate the, un the wholesome. If, if it were not feasible, I would not ask you to do it. Cultivation of the wholesome brings benefit and happiness. Therefore, I say, cultivate what is wholesome. And I just want to say this again. If it were not feasible, I would not ask you to do it. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. So that's, um, that is taking refuge in the Buddha, or some ways to think about it. Um, of course, we know the second refuge is refuge in the Dhamma, and there are three levels and ways to think about that. There's, of course, outer refuge, hearing and studying the works of the Buddha, 
And actually, um, according to right view, you actually have to hear the words of the Buddha. You have to hear this doctrine in order to become awakened by this path. So, you know, that is one of the prerequisites. But, you know, it doesn't, you can't only listen to uh, the words. You you can't only be a um, Pali scholar. You have to actually put the teachings into practice, which is what we're doing here. You have to um, do the practice. And these two together culminate in inner refuge in the attainment of awakening as a result of that practice. One other way to think about uh, refuge in the Dhamma is just surrendering to the reality of existence, to, to physics. And, you know, since the Buddha, historical Buddha, pretty much had the vision of an MRI or better, I would say anything he said about reality, we should really believe. <laughs> so, you know, what did the Buddha teach? What were, you know, what are some reflections that we could have when we're reflecting on uh, the refuge in the Dhamma? What, you know, where are we going for, for protection? You know, where are we going to end suffering when we um, reflect on the Dhamma? And that would, of course, be the elephant's footprints, the Four Noble Truths. Um, and, uh, you know, the Four Noble Truths are so profound. They're such profound teachings. And they're, you know, wonderful reflections, I think, on a long retreat. And uh, one important thing about the Four Noble Truths is that they're not principles of philosophy. They're actually verbs attached to them. They're tasks to be done. And, you know, we know what those are. And this is what, you know, we're doing here. This is what we're all doing up here as part of our practice of teaching Dharma. And that's what you're doing there, practicing a meditation and listening to Dharma. That, you know, we're doing those verbs right now. And, you know, many, I have heard from many of you in questions and in interviews that you are knowing dukkha. You are knowing pain in the body. That is what you're supposed to be doing. That is exactly what the First Noble Truth says that you are doing on your cushions. So when you are experiencing pain in the body, you know, you get to a deeper level and you realize, this is not my pain. This is the nature of having a body. It is not personal. It is not personal. This is what it means to have a body. And you start having... Uh, compassion for yourself, and you start realizing that everyone with a body experiences the stukkha. It's not personal. And then, you know, our next reflection is um, this dukkha, you know, dukkha in all of its forms is caused by clinging, by, you know, wanting things to be other than they are. Um, And, you know, that's huge. That's a very huge reflection. I loved the question, how do we know when we're clinging? I just thought that was a great question. How do we know when we're clinging? You know, that's a very multi-level question, but I'll just give you these few words by Pima Chodron. She says, work with the greatest defilements first. So we may so take for granted the multitude of daily irritations that we don't even think of them as something to work with. To some degree, they are the hardest obstacles to work with because they don't reveal themselves. The only way you know that these are arising is that you feel righteous indignation. (laughs) 
Let righteous indignation be your guide that someone is holding on to themselves and that someone is probably you. <laughs> you know, when I sat this retreat, that was one of my biggest realizations. You know, I realized that I had been living with this low, you know, at varying levels of self-pity my whole life. And it had, it was so immobilized me. It was so wonderful to actually see through this irritation that was so ubiquitous in my, you know, mind state in my life that it was very hard for mindfulness to get a frame around it. And that's what we're doing here is we're getting a frame around those habitual uh, mind states that are just, you know, causing those um, distortions of perception that Bonte talked so beautifully about last night. So how do we do this? You know, what are, how are we uh, practicing these Four Noble Truths? You know, the main practice here is this wonderful practice of Satipatthana. And, you know, I, I know that we all so believed in it before the 2,500 journal articles. <laughs> but I just want to remind us that people are catching on that you know, this is really a spectacular practice that we're doing. It's a remarkable practice that can lead, lead us really into a, lot of, uh, into a lot of happiness, the highest happiness. And I want to say that for um, those of us, all of us have been influenced by um, delusion that has to do with our both ascribed and our acquired characteristics. And... Um, you know, things like our ethnicity, our age, you know, this uh, sexual orientation, the spectrum of gender, male on one end, female on another, and everything in between. And, um, you know, this um, practice, Satipatthana, um, Satisampajanya, actually is, uh, allows us to cut through all of that. And I just want to say a few words about um, Sati, about mindfulness. You know, um, Andrea gave a great talk about, you know, what is mindfulness? What is this thing that we're practicing? And I wanted to point out a few of the things that have been really up for me right now as a way to reflect on the um, work of mindfulness. First, I want to give a quote by Steve Biku, who was one of, uh, of course, uh, the most important leaders fighting against apartheid. He said, the most potent weapon in the hands of the oppressor is the mind of the oppressed. One of my colleagues at, um, actually, Professor Michael Yellowbird, who's a social work professor at uh, Ukiah State, uh, actually, he's written a paper calling um, Mindfulness Meditation Neurodecolonization. It can both decolonize the colonizer and the colonizer. So how does this wonderful sati work? So um, I'm actually really loved, or really love, um, Anulayo's, Anulayo's definition of sati in his book, Satipatthana. But I hear that it's actually um, evolving. Of course, it's a Nietzsche. It's changing as well, his definition. But he says that sati, or mindfulness, has the quality of bare and equanimous receptivity. Um, 
So what that means is that if ever there, you know, one of the most important things that we know when we're sitting on the cushion and looking at what's arising is whatever is arising is arising because of causes and conditions. It's karma, right? You know, we, it's not like we will any of that to arise. But how we hold it, whether we're holding it with equanimity, whether we're seeing it clearly, tells us the strength of our mindfulness in that moment. And that's what we should really be looking at. You know, what is the flavor that we're holding what's arising? Is there aversion? Is there greed in the mind? Are we wanting some experience to arise rather than just really looking at what is there? You know, um, hanging out in there is a body, feeling that body awareness and see where mindfulness takes us. What becomes, you know, evident there? If we're wanting some special circumstance, there's greed in the mind. So the task of sati, according to Anulayu, and I'm sure the Buddha, is the reduction of habitual reactions and perceptual uh, evaluations. It actually works, it works right before what Bonte talked about, that uh, distortion of perception. He talked a lot about that. It works right before the distortion of perception to actually see the object clearly. It sees clearly. And what it does is, and this must be what the neuroscientists are finding, because what the Buddha said was that it actually restructures your perception, you know, the, your memory or how you um, understand things or how you label things. And it gets rid of, you know, it actually cleans out all of those perceptions based on all those ascribed and acquired characteristics. And it actually lets you see reality as it is. And we know what we see when we see reality as it is. We see uh, anicca, anatta, and dukkha. Um, I was listening to a Dharma talk that Anulayo um, gave, and he said, someone asked him, it was the best question ever, someone asked him, what is your practice like? What do you do? And he said, well, in my day-to-day -day life, I do metta because I think it's very important to have a benevolent um, relationship with the world and he said when I'm in intensive practice I look for the three characteristics not that you know you should be doing that like you know asking the three characteristics to arise but you know that's what when we see when we're really seeing reality that's what we're seeing and finally I wanted to say that um, he also said something about mindfulness holding holding experience between something psychology calls experiential avoidance. We're always avoiding things, aren't we always? It's like dukkha comes up and we just have that slight shift away. <laughs> Isn't that our lives? I mean, we are always that slight shift away from dukkha. It's like we just don't want to see it. And then the other end is that we are just obsessed with whatever we think is going to make us happy. So um, Analayo says that that is one interpretation of the middle way, is that we don't deny and we don't obsess. We don't turn away and we don't indulge. That mindfulness is holding the object in the middle between that. And if we can see that, if we, if we can frame the object in mindfulness, that's where the deconditioning comes in. That's where we uproot these defilements. We see them, you know, we notice. Actually, that's one of the aspects of, of Vedana. The second foundation is to know whether something is wholesome or not. 
you know, you can see that and then you can just say, nope, not feeding that, not feeding that, feeding that, feeding that. You know, when wholesome things arise, it's just as important to notice when wholesome things arise so you can get a flavor of what that feels like in your mind. So you can call that up when you need it. It's important to know when there are, are wholesome mental factors in your mind, in your mind heart. That's really important as well. So that's what I wanted to say about the second foundation. And I think I wanted to read something. Yeah, I wanted to say something about the desire, I mean, the purpose for, uh, the purpose for um, our practice and what is, the appropriate, what is the appropriate goal of our practice. So I'm going to tell you guys a secret. <laughs> you know, with, I don't know if this is a secret, but this is something that I learned two weeks ago from three of the teachers on the stage when we had our teacher training. You know, you might know that Spirit Rock and IMS is doing teacher training. It's, you know, like a four-year program. It's a pretty intense training. It's, you know, week-long didactics and apprenticing, and that's what I'm doing right now. I am apprenticing, and I so appreciate you letting me do this. <laughs> but one thing that we learned is that, um, you know, people are very, very concerned about the impact of, now the term is applied mindfulness. It's not secular mindfulness, it's applied mindfulness. They're concerned about the impact of applied mindfulness just on how the Buddha Dharma is going to be taught and received. And everyone, you know, all of my teachers, whether at Spirit Rock, whether at IMS, um, you know, believe that one of the biggest issues of that is whether, that, whether mindfulness is taught with right view. And of course, right view is um, knowing that you're practicing to realize the Four Noble Truths, which means that you're practicing for the third Noble Truth is that you're practicing for Nibbana, for awakening. And that is an important you know, goal. Uh, one way I think about it is that is the summit. You know, if we don't know where we're going, we might get lost. So we have to know, you know, what the goal is. So we, we go in that direction. And, you know, the Buddha, you know, what I love about the Buddha was that he was such a skilled teacher, he used upaya, you know, he had skillful means. You know, to Agadatta he said, be careful of worshiping the forest. To other people he said, go sit under a tree. You know, he knew, with that wisdom eye, he knew how to... Um, that there were different skillful means at different times for the goal. And that's, a, you know, definitely something for us to realize when we're meditating as well. There's, you know, there's never just one right way to do our practice. It really depends on what's coming up. We have to have skillful means as well. You know, when we're tired, when our effort is low, we do practices that increase the effort. When our effort is too strong and we're wigging out, we do practices to bring in the tranquility and calm. You know, we're always balancing those um, enlightenment factors. It's, you know, it's skillful means, it's upaya the way that the Buddha taught it. And I wanted just to read this little piece on uh, desire and aspiration, because some some of us might believe that wanting awakening is actually a desire and we shouldn't want that. 
So um, this is what Gil Fransdahl says about um, the spectrum of desire. An important function of meditation is to calm down the incessant, incessant churning of desire so that we can discover at the other end of the spectrum our deepest wellspring of motivation. If we want to base our lives on aspiration rather than craving, we have to give ourselves time to discover our deepest wishes. Aspiration often arises from a non-discursive part of the heart and mind. Craving and clinging are often tied to the discursive world of planning, thinking, and fantasy, while aspiration is associated with inner stillness and relaxation. Sometimes it is only during long contemplative periods that people discover what they most want to base their lives on. Does that sound familiar? Sometimes it is only during long contemplative periods that people discover what they most want to base their lives on. It is important to respect both ourselves and our aspiration. It is easy to dismiss both our aspirations and the reach for them, believing that we are not good enough, capable, or deserving can leave us feeling unfulfilled and regretful. In the world of aspirations, it is far better to try and fail than to never try again. Central to the Buddhist practice are the aspirations for liberation and for the alleviation of the suffering of others. They can seem so natural that they appear impersonal. Just as water flows downhill, so the unimpeded heart flows to freedom and service. The heart the healthy desire for freedom and compassion can flow like a mighty river that finds its rest in reaching the vast ocean. So that is, you know, what we're practicing for, our deepest aspiration. And then finally, I want to just say a few words about Sangha. You know, Sangha is thought of in um, a few ways. It's thought of um, in you know an Aryan sangha of people who have taste, tasted the deathless, that people who have tasted freedom, uh, you know their um, you know their company is thought to be just excellent company, and then there is the sangha of everyone who is practicing the Buddha Dharma, and you know that's also excellent company, and I have to say that I actually I don't know what it was I still can't figure out what it was but. I actually gave a version of this talk at the Seattle uh, Sims, and the reason I gave, you know, I wanted to do a talk on the refuges is because I had, it wasn't even an insight. I don't know what it was. And if I think about it right now, I might start crying because it was just the deepest appreciation of Sangha. You know, where can you go and be safe? Sangha, got it. Sangha abides. <laughs> so I wanted to uh, read this little poem about uh, the Buddha Dharma Sangha. It's by Hogan Bays, and he wrote it in appreciation of his teacher, Shoda Harada Roshi. In the presence of Sangha, in the light of Dharma, in oneness with Buddha, May my path to complete enlightenment benefit everyone. In this passing moment, karma ripens and all things come to be. 
I vow to choose what is. If there is cost, I choose to pay. If there is need, I choose to give. If there is pain, I choose to feel. If there is sorrow, I choose to grieve. When burning, I choose heat. When calm, I choose peace. When starving, I choose hunger. When happy, I choose joy. Whom I encounter, I choose to meet. What I shoulder, I choose to bear. When it, it, when it is my death, I choose to die. Where this takes me, I choose to go. Being with what is, I respond to what is, to what is. This life is as real as a dream. The one who knows it cannot be found, and truth is not a thing. Therefore, I vow to choose this Dharma entrance gate. May all Buddhas and wise ones help me live this vow. And in closing, I was hoping that maybe we could actually sing the homage, chant the homage and the refuges together. And I'm not a good singer, so I hope those out there who know this chant and are good singers will help me with this. I'm going to turn off the mic. <laughs> <laughs>